You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Lots of gems in that movie. There's like, I feel like sometimes it's the subtler things like the 12 gauge. What did you think I heard was the great Wolverine, that Wolverine joke, little, little subtle dry humor. I, I, you know, that thing came out in 2004. So that was the heyday for me, man. I mean, I was in college. I had nothing to do. And we just, they would play the movies for free. I just pay a dollar every time and it never got old. All those old Napoleon uh, dynamite jokes. Um, one of my, uh, one of my favorite characters in there that I think gets overlooked a lot is, um, is uh, Rex Quando. Rex Quando is the, uh, about halfway through the movie, um, Napoleon and Kip, they get on that little rollerblade thing, and he's like hustling through on the bike, and they show up with the sleeveless shirt, and they kind of sit down there on the mat, and uh, here's this larger-than-life, extra bravado uh, Taekwondo instructor named Rex, and what does Rex say to the guy? He goes, bow to your sensei, <laughs> is the first thing that he says, you know, to these poor little, like, emasculated 105-pound little guys, Napoleon and Kip. You know, and then Kip has to come up there with that little muskrat, you know, mustache, and then Uncle, or Uncle Rico, then uh, Rex Quando completely emasculates him. You know, he's like, grab my other arm, the other arm, no, my other, and then smacks him in the face, you know? And everything in you is just like, oh, man, I know this guy. I, I really do not like, you know, Rex Quando. Rex Quando is, 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 not, uh, is not, a, not, not a popular character, I'm sure, if, if, we, would, if we were to meet him in, in real life. Um, but... Um, I bring, out, I bring all that up because uh, we'd have to laugh if, if we weren't going to cry over the topic that we're going to get into today. It's a topic that's been all over uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and it's just a topic that once I say this word, you're just going to get, you're going to get a rash. You're going to get allergic. It's not going to feel good, okay? Uh, and so we're just, we're, we're laughing if we didn't cry um, about this word. It shows up six times in uh, the letter Peter and all throughout the New Testament is, is this word submission. How you doing? <laughs> How you doing with this, with this word, this word submission? Everybody say Submission. Everybody say, I love submission. Everybody say, I love to do what other people tell me to do. <laughs> I mean, do you feel that? Like, it's like, whoa, like, it's just, it's so hard, you know, to, to think about that um, because uh, there's lots of people with opinions and lots of people that want to be boss. And uh, submission doesn't just mean serving. Like the thing that happens when we come at that thing from a biblical perspective is we just want to soften that by redefining the word because we know it's in there, but we just don't want to deal with it. And it's, I think, head-on um, head implication, you know. If I go and out of the goodness of my heart decide to wash Izzy's car, that makes me a servant. Like I, I'm not necessarily going to do it, Izzy, but I'm just saying as an example, like <clears throat> that means I'm doing what I want to do and I'm serving him. If he asks me to do that, I'm doing what he wants me to do, right? And I'm voluntarily deciding to do that. But isn't submission a totally different character? Submission isn't just do what you want. Submission isn't just do what I want. Submission is do as I say. Oh, my goodness. Like, you just feel like it's just, it's not a thing, fun thing to talk about. It's not a fun thing to say. And I'll just submit to you. You probably, you know, agree um, is that that's because in America, we have a relationship with submission called submission if. Submission if, which is, which is, which is based on this, this idea that it's based on character and competency and chemistry. So, so it's like, if the person is a good guy, if the person is a good lady, I'll consider following them. I'll consider putting myself under what they're saying. Uh, competency, if the person is an expert in their field and they're better at me at what they do and I have something to gain by listening to what they have to say, 
I'll happily get on YouTube and submit to whatever it is that they say because I have deemed them with enough likes and retweets that I will follow them because they've earned that right to be followed and they fit the criteria of the competency checkmark. They check the box. They are competent enough, I will submit to them. Or, last but not least, the chemistry one is they like me and I like them and so therefore, because of that chemistry, I'll submit. But the Bible is, 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 is not saying that submit just means, just means to respect or just means to admonish, but it does mean um, to come under. It's actually a military term, which means to come up under uh, the covering and the leadership of someone of someone else. And so uh, what First Peter is doing is, um, he, he, is he, he is, context is king in the Bible. And so as we read First Peter chapter 3 or First Peter chapter 2, we have to remember that they all come after First Peter chapter 1. And the bigger subtext of this is you're not from here. You don't belong here. This is not your home. And you're following Jesus to a real home. And the, the sooner you figure that out and not do things the way that people do, th- do them around here and, and, and inhale and, and become contextual in the culture here and, and do as the Romans do, you are actually losing false homes for real ones and false hopes for real ones and false holiness. And you actually are finding home in Jesus. And then under that, one of the ways that the church is different from the world is this idea of submission. And it all comes back. I'm going to read the passages this morning. All of them have these likewises in the beginning of the phrase of the verses to point us back to the why, the extent, and the example. And the extent and the example of submission is always, always this, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll get into 3 in a moment. If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example. There's that word. Why are we submitting? Because... We, Simon says it, we are following the example because Jesus did it, that's why, right? It's not because, like when we, Peter's trying to do this, he's trying to take your cultural version of submission and it's loaded with political parties and it's loaded with 1950s culture and it's loaded with some presuppositions about what the world has to say about submission. And he's trying to scrub the deck clean of what you think submission is and all he wants in that whiteboard space is not culture but Christ. He wants you looking at the example of Jesus, and he's saying you don't have a if relationship with submission, you have a because relationship with submission, and it's not because of what the world says or because of what you want, because of what Christ did, because he's the example. Because there's no way to live a life better than Jesus, and Jesus submitted perfectly, sinlessly and perfectly. He submitted to people that were not character-driven, they were not competency-driven, right? And they didn't have chemistry for him. A la David following Saul. You want the template for what this looks like, for what is it? I mean, well, maybe there's an exception. Maybe it's when he has a higher character. If it's good people, if they're smart enough, then I'll follow him. That's not the template we've been given. We've been given the template of Christ, and so we don't have a if relationship with submission. We have a because. And we cannot afford to lose the clairvoyant vision of what that looks like, that submission is, is because I want to look like Jesus. And so he walks it out for you. He, li- he gives you the limit and the extent. If you are thinking maybe you have a loophole around submitting to unjust leaders and you didn't read the story about David, at least look at Jesus. He committed no sin. He had no deceit that was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, and especially when they were bad leaders, he ended up. Why? Why? When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Why? Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It's like Jesus says that you should not do, there's a, there's a reason why we are doing good things. It's not a goody two-shoes or not because we're scared of the government or not because somebody said, bow to your sensei. We do good when evil is given to us because that's the model that Jesus gave us. 
And because we don't do our good works before men, but before our Father, and it pleases our Father in heaven. Don't do your good works before men, motivated by their respect of you, but motivated by what puts a smile on God's face. And so he runs that gauntlet with us around the entire circle there, and he, and he takes us to these different institutional, not informal, but institutionalized authority structures. Verse 13, submit yourselves, Christians, to, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. He goes into the workplace. Now, Roman slavery is not the same thing as American slavery. American slavery is violent and horrific and, and all these things. The slave system there in Rome at that point in time was more like masters and, and, and uh, employee-employer relationships in a kind of semi-feudal scenario. And so it's just talking about work relationships. Now, mind you, submission, again, because it's a because and not, not a if. Submission, right, will never, let's create some boundaries of this, will never uh, cause you to sin. Like, I'm not going to follow somebody into sin and call it submission, that's not what submission is. Submission is unto the Lord, I'm following him and ultimately not them. And so submission does not mean following somebody into sin. Submission does not mean following somebody into iniquity, which means allowing for some other authority to redefine right and, right and wrong, good and evil on their own terms, and then, and then allow for somebody else to take the place of God in my life. That's unhealthy, run, get out of that. That's not what submission means. Submission does not mean I accept evil and call it good. That's iniquity. So submission means I can protest. Submission means I can speak wisdom. Submission means I can uh, trust in the word of the Lord to be the ultimate definition of right and wrong, and at the same time, walk the way of the exile in loyal love and love uh, Pharaoh the way that Joseph loved Pharaoh and love Nebuchadnezzar and serve Nebuchadnezzar the way that Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar, right? And love um, uh, my neighbor the way that Jesus loved his neighbor, it doesn't mean that they're better than you or greater than you or that you should fear them into abuse, sin, or iniquity, but it does mean coming under, okay? And lastly, and this is where I'm gonna have, we're all gonna pray. We're just gonna pray for me and we're just gonna pray for this whole room as we walk through this passage together, right? So in, within the family structure, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. And so, uh, dear Lord Jesus, I just pray that you have mercy on me and on this room and um, uh, forgive the speaker for his sins are many. And um, as we just uh, walk through your word, I pray that you would really, really um, speak to us um, in, uh, in this topic. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. There are three reasons, if you look through the book of 1 Peter, that are preeminent when it comes to the value of submission. We're awfully not following them, we're following him. We're trusting that his sovereignty is above everyone else's sovereignty. He's in charge of those that are in charge, always. And so uh, there are three uh, reasons that although the world will call submission ugly, uh, Jesus calls submission beautiful, okay? And these are the reasons. Uh, the first reason you're gonna see in the book of 1 Peter is that uh, 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 God calls submission beautiful because it shares the gospel. This is what 1 Peter, this is what Peter uh, uh, supposes about human beings is that whether we're American or not, People don't submit. They, they don't do that, right? They don't return uh, good for evil, uh, and, and they, don't, they don't put themselves under others, right? And so this is the assumption, is that when it is that life and circumstance and ultimately God's sovereignty puts evil before you to knock at your door, there is almost no greater opportunity to preach the gospel when, than when evil comes your way. Why? Because when evil comes someone's way, 
Everyone can return evil with evil. Everyone can return good with good, but only Christ returns good for evil. And so like Steph Curry at a three-point line with an open shot, you have no greater opportunity coming to your door to preach the gospel than when evil comes your way. And so that's why there's this, even in Acts, like they celebrated the fact that they are worthy of suffering. They were inviting of the reality of evil coming their way because every time, the Bible's saying that as we serve and as we sacrifice to love our enemy and wash the feet of people who, um, who persecute us, when it is that we do that, we preach a loud gospel. People pay attention because everybody returns good for good. Everybody returns evil for evil, but only Christ returns good for evil. So submission is an opportunity to preach the gospel loud. The second reason that submission is beautiful in the Bible is because, um, because submission gives us a common, uh, uh, common experience with Jesus. The thing it is, is that um, Jesus did not live a life down here of comfort and coziness. Have you seen that? Jesus was well-equipped and well-experienced with dealing with harsh and mean and murderous leaders over his life. And Peter says that as we submit to people that don't deserve submission, we have common experience with Jesus. He says it this way, that we share in the sufferings of Christ. And that somehow through this process, we we, we actually empathize and experience what it was like to be Jesus on this place, and we share somehow. We are joining with Jesus, and we are sharing with his sufferings, and he doesn't have in common anybody that doesn't have hardship in his life. In this life, you'll have trouble. If they hated me, they will hate you too, and if we don't have experience with submitting to harsh and hard things, we don't have a common vernacular with him. We don't know what his life was like. But last and most importantly, because some of us will not always experience harshness and some of us will not always see our cities change, maybe it's the opposite when it comes to sharing the gospel of doing good as a return for evil. There is one thing that is a promise and it is the core reason I think that Peter and Jesus would tell you that submission is beautiful because submission is one of the ways that we please our Father in heaven. This is what Jesus says, don't do your good deeds in front of men so that you will be praised, but do them in front of your Father in heaven. And so the, the, the Christian son or daughter has no other higher shelf of value for how he or she is gonna spend his day than to please their father. If you are a son or a daughter, the most important thing that you will ever do is to please him in the public and in the private and when it costs you the most. And so this is, every time and time, you read it yourself in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter two, Timothy did a great job last week to talk about this. But there's beauty in submission because, because God sees um, every submissive and sacrificial act as a love language to him. And so that's, that, that's, the, that's the crux of the thing. Okay, and so we're making our way through. Context is king. First Peter 3 is not a marriage conference. It's not something that we go to the book and say, my marriage is broken, fix my marriage. Let's look at First Peter. That's not how the Bible's written. First Peter chapter 3 comes after First Peter 2, right? And First Peter 2 comes after First Peter 1. And, 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 the, and the core theme, the author, is responsible for telling us what the therefore is therefore. And the whole crux of this thing is about being in exile. You're not home, you're following Jesus home. That's the most important thing to you. This is not a message about get married, right? This is not a message about how to get your wife to do. This is a message about, okay, you care about Jesus, right? You wanna be home in him, right? Yes, I wanna follow Jesus, I wanna give my life. Okay, then, the, then what makes you different is not that you're better or smarter and you can speak, it's like, it's what makes you different on this earth is you have a living hope. Remember that? What is the difference about an exile is that my hope is not in my, my house, my hope is not in my job, my hope is in the empty tomb. I'm banking my life that all he has is with me and all he has is mine and he is always with me because the tomb is empty. 
That is my hope. And so my hope doesn't change. My hope changes me. So because I live in that hope, I grasp for ways to communicate to my deaf and blind neighbor what that hope is about. And because I want to look like Jesus and follow him, him home, because I want to be different the way he was different, because I hope in a resurrected tomb, then my answer is submission. But it only falls in the right context of that, of that, of that rationale. That's, that's the reason why he talks about what he's talking about, okay? And so he hits, hits the citizens, because every Christian is, we're submitting, we're, we're, we're in this testing process of submitting to unlikely um, and undeserving leaders to show our devotion and to please our Father in heaven, he goes through citizenship, he goes through work, and then he goes to the home. This is what he says. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And when they see the purity and reverence of your life. So a couple of things that submission does not mean, and then a couple of things that submission in this case does mean, is first and foremost, notice it says wives should submit to their own husbands, which does not mean that women all the time should submit to all men. Right? It never, you're never going to say that. That's a, that's a patriarchal, I mean, maybe it worked for some cultures or whatever, but that's not, that's, you're not following the scripture. You might follow something else, but that's not what the scripture said. Scripture is saying that in the context of the home, there's an opportunity here for wives to submit. Okay? Now, the other operative word you want to pay attention to is your own husbands. Okay? And so what this also is not is not the husband's opportunity to take spark notes on the Bible and then interpret the Bible for his wife. In other words, to go home to tell his wife to submit to him, right? This is the reality. This is an A and B conversation, and husbands should see their way out, okay? Husbands, like, this is the quiz you should fail. They should ask you, what is the wife's responsibility in the home? And you should go, I have no idea because I'm spending too much time trying to serve her. I, have, I don't even know. It was in one ear out the other. This is not a sermon for you to amen to. I don't want to hear any amens from the husband, right? I want you to close your ears, and I want you to fail this test, right? Because this is not between you and the, the God and the husband to the wife. This is just God inviting the husband to exit and speaking directly to his daughter. This is a serious conversation. It just says, sweetheart, like, you're my daughter, and this is what I did in the life. I have, I'm not talking about the 50s. I'm not talking about I love Lucy, right? I'm talking about Jesus, do you think his life is worthy of following? Then follow his example. And this is a powerful opportunity to return good for evil, to join with Jesus, to preach the gospel and please the Father. If you have an opportunity today to do those things, I'm inviting you to do it. This is what he's saying to, to his wives, okay? Or to the wives, right, in, in the households. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe in the word, they may be won over without words. Okay, now, what submission does mean is not the kind of watered-down version that we, I think we try to, like, soften it and sand it off to try and rub off, like, you know, we'll say, well, submission just means respect. You know, it's like, don't, don't talk trash about your husband, don't talk to the, your mom negatively about the husband. It's like, yeah, that's for sure there, right? So respect is, is a thing that we should respect everybody. And it's not just love, which means to say good things about your husband, build them up, right? Submission if we really do look at this, and this obviously goes to everybody, it goes to citizens, it goes to bosses and masters and workers, submission is beautiful, the world calls it ugly, it's submiss submission is beautiful, preach the gospel, yada, da, da. Then if we're taking his word for it, and not our own or not the world's, it does mean to come under, to lift up. The husband's job is to come over, to lift up the wife, and the wife's job is to come under the leadership and the care of her husband 
to, to, to build up her husband and build up, up, up the family. And so, um, and so ultimately, as I worked through the passage today and, and, and studied it and looked at the cross-references and all that kind of thing, um, I don't know how to read the passage other than defining submission as allowing someone else to make decisions. And, um, and so here, here's where this, it, it, it's, it's funny because oftentimes, um, in terms of the common Christian culture, if you ask families like, hey, who is the spiritual leader in the home? Everybody wants to say the husband, but most of those people are lying, okay? Because, here's why, because when a young woman gets married, she knows herself, right? And if they decide to have children, she knows the kids because she's with them. And she has more intel. And so it's just more expedient and efficient to leave him out there. Because it's easier to lead me than have him lead me. I don't want to lead. I don't want to follow. I don't want somebody to lead me to lead me. I was like, how about I lead myself, right? He leads himself. And instead of marriage, we have roommates, okay? We have two people that play... They, they, don't, they don't have to submit or serve or depend on each other. They're independently under the same thing, okay? And time goes on, and he becomes more and more of a knucklehead and more and more of an income poop, really, of anything that's going on in his home because she allows him to do that and because he doesn't want to take the responsibility. So if you ask the average husband, what's the bus number for your car? How long do you have to cook something in the microwave? You know, where's your underwear? How do we pay the bills? He's clueless, right? Because you have to know information in order to lead. And here's my thing. If you're a football coach or you're um, a teacher or, whatever, or a principal at a school, if you're not making decisions, you're not leading. And that's the deal is that we end up following the world's culture and getting the world's results and then being surprised what went wrong when we didn't just trust the word that it said. He's not going for expedient. He's going for healthy. And sometimes things work that are dysfunctional. Because it's easier for me to lead myself and for him to lead himself, right? And the two paths don't need to meet, right? And I get to empower him to be independent so I can be independent too. And you have, listen, you have, you have husbands in most Christian homes that are not the spiritual leaders. You can call them, but they are not leading if they don't know information, they're not making decisions. So you have husbands not leading, you have wives that are not happy, and then you have houses that are not united, and we swallow the world's ways and definitions of submission, and then we wonder why we have the same statistics. And he's saying, I didn't come to make you roommates. I came to make you intimate. And trusting somebody else's leadership is always harder. It is always easier for, to lead myself, and it's always easier for the husband to lead. Here's the, here's the bottom line, though. Take it up with the Lord. Take it up with Scripture, okay? If God's the head, right? Father's the head of Jesus. Jesus obeys the Father. Jesus is the head of the church and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean abuse and, and, and empowering dysfunction. It doesn't mean that women don't have a voice. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means, it means, comp, it means roles. And, and, and so here's the, here's the reality. It's either true or it's not. I believe the scripture is saying that when the husband goes to heaven and meets Jesus, he's going to answer a question that the wife is not going to answer. And it's a very solemn question. It's simply this. Husband, what did you do with your family? You were called to love your family as Christ loved the church. You were called to be the head, and you were called to lead your family like Christ. You were called to wash feet and lead and build up and provide and protect, and I don't care what she did about that. I'm asking you, what did you do with your family? He's not going to ask the wife that question. And the wife then has the opportunity 
to either help or hinder him in that pursuit, but she can't change that question. He's not coming to her with that question because that's not what he instituted when he's talking about in Ephesians and Paul and these other things in Jesus as he talks about these, these roles, right? Submission means to get him and let him make decisions. He has to feel the responsibility. If you empower him to not take responsibility for his kids and his family, he'll take you up on that offer. He will let you lead yourself because leadership means responsibility, and he will always defer to you and rubber stamp the decisions as though he made them, but he's not making any decisions because he doesn't care, and he doesn't have to be involved, and he doesn't have to get down and listen and be slow, right, and lead because leadership is slow, right? Ruling over somebody is easy and quick, and it serves me. Leadership is actually serving and being responsible and laying my life down, and if you give him permission to do that, he will take you up on it, and you'll have another child in the home. That's exactly what happens, right? They, we say we're spiritual leaders, but if you don't know what's going on in your home and you don't make decisions, you're not the leader. And you could maybe be great. You'd be famous in the marketplace. You'd be famous somewhere else, and you're a great leader somewhere else, but you're not leading in the home. And we wonder why husbands are not leading and wives are not happy and, and homes are, are, not, are not together, why we, why we look like the world, okay? And so here, here's the deal, is that ultimately, this is a passage about power. The reason why it's scary is because power is often corrupted, if not always and absolutely corrupted, okay? And so he's not getting rid of power, and he's not trying to take power from anyone. As a matter of fact, both for the church and the world and for the wife and the home, he's trying to reveal and give power because he's not intimidated by sharing power, okay? And so this is the power. Listen, wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of your wife. Did you catch that? There is no category in the Bible higher than the obstinance of the human heart. I mean, if there's one message the Bible is saying is that humans are in, incredibly stubborn and hard-hearted and never change their heart, that Jesus himself, God in, in flesh, could walk down and waltz into a city and heal hundreds of people, and people would, would see that and still not repent. Woe to you, Corazon, where are you best, Sheba, right? This is the idea, that the human heart is just unfathomably hard-hearted. And what it is saying in this passage, if we don't let it wash over us too quick, is that in this passage, it's bestowing to women in their households, wives in their households, it's not taking power but giving it, so much power, it's saying that what Jesus Christ couldn't do in miracles, a wife could do without words. Did you catch that? That the authority and the fear of the Lord in the heart of a wife, that she takes God's word more seriously than culture and, 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 and even church and husbands and all these things combined, she gives him her undivided yes it could change what Jesus' miracles couldn't change in the heart of a human. Did you catch how much power is bestowed, how much trust is bestowed to, to a woman, okay? And so there's a couple of words. You could take a look at this little app that I found. It's called uh, Literal Word, and it's great. I would highly recommend it, especially for epistles, because there's all this language and context, and we have tons of imported meaning for what all these words are, but it's just a healthy thing, especially for the adjectives and the superlatives to define, you know, like, where did this appear? How many times did it appear in the passage? How is it cross-referenced? Because, again, they cannot all the time mean the same words back then in their story and culture as we do back then. So I just, I did my best with some of this stuff, but just a couple of adjectives that describe this powerful gospel kingdom bringing woman that can change and move mountains even more so than Jesus could with miracles. This kind of woman, this is what it's described. He says, when they see the purity and the reverence. So just a couple breakdown there. Purity does not mean just cleanliness. It doesn't mean the, the abstinence of sin. Purity means consecrated one-heartedness. Uh, purity means not having a divided heart, which means my heart is divided and fearful of many things like, you know, 
the COVID thing and the politics thing, and I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. What it is is it's a united heart. So the psalm that gives us great language for purity and reverence, purity and fear in this case, purity and reverence is, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Have you ever heard this in a psalm? Unite my heart to fear your name. What does that mean? That means that God gives us a gift. It's maybe one of the greatest gifts he gives us because his glory and his holiness is so heavy is that when somebody encounters it, they exchange many fears just to have one fear. You see that? It's in his presence. He gives me such a fear and a reverence for him, he frees me from every other fear. So I actually have an opportunity there in his presence to lay down a hundred fears that I might just have one fear. How many of you guys would rather one fear of the one who loves us than a million fears of the ones that don't? Right? How many of you guys would rather fear the Lord? So the reverence and purity thing is there's such a fear in the heart of the reverence in the heart of the woman that she is not worried about her husband's stubbornness or stupidity or lack of competence or character because she fears God so much she couldn't bear to fear him. She has a purity and a reverence for the Lord alone. And that produces in her, these two other words, a gentle and a quiet, now notice, not mouth, spirit. <laughs> it's a big deal, right? It's not saying that women are not supposed to be loquacious or they're not supposed to talk or they're not supposed to have the opinion. It's speaking about, way more than that, speaking about the heart. How many of you guys know you could have a stormy heart with a loud mouth? Or you could have a loud mouth with a calm heart. So the picture here of gentle and quiet is that of a serene pond that is so serene that when chaos meets it, the peace cancels the chaos. And that when this thing comes, comes forward, it never stirs up and provokes problems. It always calms them and gently puts them down with great power and authority, with just even a whisper, with even out words. This kind of a heart can bring chaos into shalom, okay? So that's just a question, I mean, not just for wives, and this is talking about wives, but it's also talking about anybody that's submitting or anybody that's trying to lead without being in charge, is this question, when you come into controversy, do you stir things up or do you de-escalate them down? This is what it means, to be a quiet and gentle spirit. And so it's saying in all of this, right, that women have this, almost this authority and power that even Jesus, right, had limits for. And, and so I was a teacher uh, at Southside High School, and um, I got to see this in real time a lot because uh, the football player is 6'8", 290 pounds, but his mom can get him to do whatever she wants, okay? And so I know where authority and power is, and so I, I talk to them as such, and so I sit them down, and so, um, and so the dad is like, rah, 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 and it's just Charlie Brown. The dad is just trying to tell him, and all these words, he's multiplying these words, the dad's just not making any difference. And that mom could just sit there like this, and not even, I mean, she might just say, do better. You know, she would just sit there like this, and it would just take one look from that, you know, 280-pound linebacker to look up and just look straight down in his shoes. How many of you guys have seen this before, right? The fear of the Lord in the heart of a woman, it's like, don't underestimate. The reason why we don't get this passage is because we don't understand what power is in the first place. He's like, you think power comes from guns and positions and accolades and what the world counts? That kind of power is like grass. It's here for a day, Psalm 37. The Romans think they have the earth, but the meek get it in the end in the first place. You don't know what power is if you don't know what the power of woman is. You've never studied history before. You know the abolitionist movement didn't start in 1860 when Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated. It started in the hearts and the homes of the women, in the, the brave women in the, in the early antebellum phase in the 1810s, teaching their children about the wrongs of slavery out of the Bible. You think that women didn't have any connection because they couldn't vote on that? 
Do you think that power is only going to be collected around what people want it to collect on? The Lord will institute his power through whoever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it, and oftentimes chooses the weak to shame the wise, right? It chooses the strong things of the world and, and counts them as shame, and you choose the weak things of the world to show off his glory. You think that women aren't, aren't responsible for the second great awakening in this country? The very identity marker, the foundation of where it is that even this country comes from and it's an internal values when it comes home from work and all these types of things. You think it wasn't constantly, impetuously important in, in terms of how this nation got established? And so, so the point of this thing is, is you don't, it's like if you don't think that submission is the right way, then you don't understand power because you don't understand Jesus. And it's by the time the tanks pull out, thinking that their flag was in the sand and that power is established through tanks and violence, that Jesus shows them all that when Jesus comes to take on his kingdom, he does not send in tanks, he sends in the meek. And we name our dog Caesar and we name our sons Paul for a reason, because power does not work the way that we want it to. Power works it the way that God decrees it, and it's going to rest on anyone who says yes to God. That's where power lives. And so, so pay attention. So this is exactly what I'm talking about, the, the empowerment of women. Look at this. Verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. He's not saying don't wear makeup, right? What he's saying is don't mistake false power for true power because the Hollywood it girl is always it for 15 minutes but not 16. And we've all seen what happens, right, to all of us as we age and only fools invest their lives in false power. He's not talking about braids and jewelry, and he doesn't say don't wear braids and jewelry. He says don't merely put your identity in them because shameful, it's a shame for a young woman to grow up buying into the world's narrative about power and investing her identity so that when she loses it, she doesn't even know who she is anymore. That's what he's trying to avoid. He's not, he's not trying to, to oppress. He's trying to empower you so that you know what true power is. Verse 4, rather, it should be on your inner self, that calm, unfading beauty here, this pond that can give peace to every storm and even do in cases what Jesus couldn't do with your life through fear and reverence, God sees that and it's worth a lot to him. It pleases the Father when you trust him over all other empires and all other powers. This is not about taking power from women. It's about, it's about, it's about giving it. And so, for this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God, you see that? It comes back to because you're in exile, not because you're Lucy or because you're born in the 50s or whatever, Right? It's because you hope in the gospel. Get a bigger vision than that. The reason why you put yourself and serve and love and wash feet to people who don't deserve it is because you were born to look like Jesus. Because your hope is not in your title that the world gives you because that title is here today and gone tomorrow. You got your hope somewhere else. And so think about the way that Sarah stewarded power. They submitted themselves to their own husbands Knowing that they're knuckleheads, this is not say that husbands are not knuckleheads. This is saying you might have a Roman husband who is a knucklehead, but you trust Christ on him and, and around him and in him because he loves you, that he's going to take care of you even though you have a knucklehead for a husband, and even though you live in a pagan society, and even though you feel like you're a minority in an exile land, you know that God's sovereignty is not, um, is not disturbed. So it says, they submit themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called um, him, her Lord. And I just want to go on record that Kyra does not call me Lord. If uh, she did, that would be weird in 28 ways. And so that's not what I, right? It's just, here's the point. Here's what I think it's really saying. It's saying somehow by the sovereignty of God, you're able to stand before the altar with a man that you are going to trust and follow 
who doesn't look like Jesus. And you're trusting, knowing his sinfulness, that his sovereignty is greater than that man's sinfulness, and your trust is not in that husband, but in Christ within that husband. That takes a lot of faith, because I know some of the knuckleheads that some of y'all are married to, right? And so the idea here is, it's like it's not saying, it's not diminishing the sinfulness of the husband, it's amplifying the sovereignty of God. I believe he's that big. I believe he's that good, and I believe not in him, but in Christ in him, that he's going to take care of me and trust and trust that as I, as, I, as, I, as I follow him, that actually I'm practicing lordship, not this way, but ultimately this way. You are his daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay, so husbands, you were not listening to this talk. You actually, I told you, you should have been texting. You shouldn't have even been listening to any of this, right? But you might have been eavesdropping, okay? <laughs> and so, and, and that's in public record of the Bible, right? So we should all eavesdrop on the Bible, no matter where it is, but it's, we're not mistaking that for some elevation of our platform to come down to boss people. And that's not it. My only job, no matter who I'm married to, is to be a Jesus or to be a Hosea. Either of those are just loving, no matter what happens, right? That's the only promise that I'm given. And so, and so, but here's the thing. If you are not a fool, you will come to only one conclusion. And that is, you are driving a plane that has more than just you in it. And you are either wise, recognizing the power and beauty of the one that he's married you to, or you're an utter fool. And if you, um, if you have allowed your heart to imagine blessing in the prettiest girl that just walked by you or scrolled by you on the internet, on the website, then not only do you not understand beauty, you don't understand power, and you don't understand God, because that's not where power lives. You're a fool. If you give up your bride because somebody cute walked by you, you're a fool. And you don't deserve power, and you don't deserve the God. You don't, you're just like, you don't deserve you're, You start at square one, right? If you allow the world's version of power, like you only listen to people that are quick or this or that or masculine, it's like you think that power comes because you look like the rock or whatever, you're a fool. Your wife has wisdom. Go listen to your wife. This is what it says, right? This is how serious this is. You're going to go to the Lord, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Weaker does not mean spiritually, emotionally. It means weaker physically. Now, how a woman is 120 pounds and pushes out babies without epidurals, I don't know what you mean by weaker. But whatever that means, okay, there's some delicate power that you have, and if you're not a fool, you'll see it. If you're a fool, you're not going to get it. And you're going to think that she's there to help you out, and this is not going to work, Okay. But if you're not drunk flying your plane, you'll know that you have precious people in your care. And you're going to answer for that family. And your power is not for you. It's to serve. The only, the only thing that you got in being a husband is a responsibility. It doesn't make you smarter or better. Or, you know, it's like, yeah, the society might give you a better job because you're this tall or whatever, because it respects stupid things for power. But then again, think about the, how the world has spent power for the last umpteen years, and then you'll understand how much they know about power, right? You don't understand power. You don't understand God. You have precious power on your plane. And if you don't consider, the word here is to be a student. Consider it means to grow in knowledge. If you're not asking questions and actually wanting your wife to make decisions for you, you're a fool because she knows more than you, right? And it's a gracious gift of life. And you're going to go to the Lord a lot in prayer and you're going to ask him questions and you're going to ask him for, for, for things. And he's just going to go, I'll tell you what you're going to do first. You're going to go talk to your wife about it first. That's how much this matters. He's going to hinder your prayer life 
to the degree that you think you can lead yourself without leading your wife and without caring for your wife. This is how serious that this role takes you. So there's anything that comes over your heart when you go and eavesdrop on a conversation between A and B over here that C, the husband, should hear that conversation and go, woe is me, I need so much help. I need the help of my friends. I need the help of the Lord. I need the help of my spouse. I want her to make decisions. Matter of fact, here's all the decisions back. I don't want the decisions. You make the decisions. And she's going to go, no, right? And then, so there it is. That's, that's ultimately the fight. This is what I think that it is. The world is, is showing a competition versus Jesus is showing a cooperation. That marriage is a fight, but it's a fight over who can be last, who can serve, submit, and sacrifice first, with the husband mostly always winning. This is my challenge to you as husbands. Forget I ever said whatever I said. You go home, and you should, you should not sleep before she sleeps. You should not get comfortable before she's comfortable. You should not eat before she eats. You should not be warm before she's warm, right? This is the deal. You're there to be a servant. That's it. And your job is not to be a boss. That's what the Gentiles do. If you understand power at all, you have precious cargo on your plane, right? And you're going to crash if you don't listen. I, had a, uh, uh, I heard from a pastor this woman's um, conference so the pastor has a wife, and the wife goes to the women's conference, and the women's conference is talking about this passage, about, about Sarah. She says she's in the plane. They're coming up over the mountain. They have a decision to make, turn around or try and elevate up over the mountain. If they go up higher, they both know that the wings could get frosted and they could crash the plane. She shares the story as a gospel testimony. She says, I stuck it out with the husband. He wanted to fly over it. I trusted him as though... It was the Lord working in him, and we flew up over that mountain, and we were safe, and everybody cheered. Wow, look at that, all that stuff. And so the pastor lady that was at the women's conference comes back to go talk to the pastor, and couldn't you believe this obedience and trust in the Lord? And this pastor says, and I think I would say the same thing, that he, said, he basically said, that is literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He was like, that dude deserves, he, could, he should be on manslaughter. He should just get written up in manslaughter, right? Like, he should have turned the plane around. That's, this is the point. The point is not to lord decisions over. The point is to follow and look like Jesus. And if I'm anything less than foolish, I'm going to listen to my wife. And my goal is to spend most of my time as a husband, letting her sleep before I sleep. Husbands, if you haven't had a baby yet, it's a thing that I didn't do and I wish I could have gotten back. Wake up with your wife, sit with her while she feeds the baby. You're not there to sleep while she's up. That's not what this is about. You're looking to not sleep till she sleeps. You're looking to not be comfortable and get on your phone until she's comfortable on her phone. You're not supposed to eat till she eats. This is the point. You're like Christ. And your standard is Jesus or Hosea, whichever one you want, I don't know. But those are not easy examples, okay? That's the idea because the world wants roommates, but Jesus wants marriage. And things can work and be dysfunctional at the same time. And it's faster and easier for her to lead her and him to lead him, but independence does not produce intimacy. And you might say, well, you would get the same decision if she gives it to him and he asks her and serves and you come back and you get the same decision. It's the same output, but you didn't get it the same way. And you don't have to trust in the same way. And when it is that we share these decisions and like the Trinity did back in Genesis, let us do this together as we move in unity together, what the, what the, what the gospel produces that the world cannot is intimacy. It's harder to trust a person that doesn't look like Jesus than to just trust myself. It's just harder. It is a difficult and a tenuous thing to follow somebody that's, that doesn't look like they're following Jesus and trust that that is what following Jesus looks like. But if, but if husbands neglect and default on responsibility and wives give them permission or even prohibit them from get, it can, growing in their responsibility, you're going to have another, you'll have another child in the home. And, that's, I mean, that's, and that is the telltale 
of every other worldly thing, right? The guys don't know what money does. They don't know where things are. They don't know how to cook stuff. They don't know what their teacher's name. They don't know what the learning style is. And you can't lead if you don't know. And you can't, you can't lead if you're not making decisions. And so at the end of the day, right, it's like I can't sit there and tell God what he means by submit. I can't sit there and tell God what he means by intimacy. And so some of this is just a trust, it's just a trust challenge. All right. So here's my essential question um, to close up, and then we'll be doing communion in just a moment. But this is my question, is your reputation, what is your reputation? You kind of know what other people would say about you if you're not in the room. What is your reputation with these three areas, the government? What is your reputation with your relationship with work? And lastly, at home, when it comes to this whole thing. What is your reputation on these three areas, and is it of sacrifice and submission and of serving? Ultimately, if we are... If we are Modeling our life after Jesus and the extent and the expression is a sinless man that chose to submit because it pleased the Father. That's the end of the day. And so here's the deal. No matter where I am, we always, nobody's an island. And everybody has people over them, like the centurion said. Everyone has people beside them, and everybody has people that is under their care. Okay? And no one can answer for what we do with that. Only we can answer. No matter how Saulish they are over here and how Absalomish they are down there. It's like nobody's going to... What are you going to do about it? And it just comes to this question. Do you make it harder on people above you to make decisions? If somebody that is over you, when it comes to work or wherever else, police officer, do you make their job hard? And and it's just saying that one of the opportunities we have is to serve Jesus, to preach the gospel, to get close to him, and to please the Father by making their job easier. I'm not saying walk into sin. I'm not saying to call evil good and good evil. I'm saying to follow the example of Jesus with no regrets, right? The person below you, as you fly the plane, knowing that you have people in your responsibility. I know that the world wants to, you know, take that off your shoulders and, and pretend like everybody's just buddies and roommates and nobody has any authority structure, nobody knows anything more than anybody else, nobody has any, and that's just not happening. So at the end of the day, if we choose to sit in a seat or not, the seat's there, and it's been given to us. And the question is, are you a student or are you a boss? Are you listening? Are you taking, like she's, when she's saying you're not listening to her, that's not a good sign. That should, that's your opportunity to figure out how to not crash the plane. She is an expert. She knows more than you. If you're a good leader, you're listening. You're considerate. You're a student. You, you, you are a student of what you care about most. And if you care about your wife most, you are interested in what she has to say because you're responsible for flying the plane. And nobody else has taken that from you, okay? So it's like, up above, are you, are you making it easier for people to make decisions down below? Are you being a student of people that are below you? And beside you, are you serving always? This is not just about being a wife or being a husband. This is about being a Christian in all spheres of life and areas where we have opportunities to preach the gospel, to join Jesus, and to please the Father. These are beautiful, beautiful things that the world calls ugly because it doesn't understand what power is. But blessed are the meek because the meek, not the Romans, inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek because they understand the gospel and they understand what power is really about in the first place. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.